the guards weren't very nice to me. So my very first night I had a guard that wouldn't even let me out to go to the bathroom mm -hmm. and I was six months pregnant. So the next day I, I passed out because I hadn't had a snack. I hadn't had dinner and the guard, the new day shift guard had said to me, are you trying to hurt your baby? And I started crying and I said, I'm trying to survive and I'm trying to make it and I don't know what to do. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Knowing Me, Knowing You with Paula. I'm your host Paula on the West Coast of Canada and that is the voice of my guest, Christine Bunch, wrongly convicted and charged with arson and the murder of her three-year-old son, she went on to spend 17 years behind bars fighting for her innocence. Now, if you Google Christine, you will discover a wealth of information about her case. But I asked Christine if she would take us on a different journey, one that would take us in her footsteps behind prison doors, sharing with us what her life was like, who were the other inmates. As a pregnant woman at the time, what medical support did she have available to her? What facilities were available to inmates? Work opportunities? And who assisted her both in and out of prison with her fight toward her innocence? Christine opens her heart to us, kindly shares her story from the connections made, lessons learned and challenges faced. There was so much ground to cover, as you can imagine, 17 years that I decided to split this episode into two parts, and we only just skim the surface. This podcast is not only about information and knowledge share, but storytelling, my favorite part. It is about connection from all walks of life, learning about others and their life experiences, hearing the challenges and the triumphs, the lessons learned, hearing and feeling someone else's life. And that is exactly what the next two episodes are about. Enjoy. Who was Christine before this whole event that happened and swung your life upside down? When this happened, I was just a, a small town girl. I grew up in Indiana and I was living in Greensburg, Indiana. I um, certainly didn't plan on being a single mom. When it happened, I felt like it was a blessing and it was also uh, a wake up call that I needed to, you know, really focus on my future and create the best possible home I could for my son. Mm -hmm. So then we fast forward that faithful night where there is this fire and your life is turned upside down. And you have, you know, this event that occurs, you must be feeling in the surreal moment that this event has happened. Um, you've lost the life of your son. You've lost your home. There was a time as well before your actual trial. So what exactly was happening during that time? Initially, after the fire, clear up until my arrest, it was a blur. I'm, you know, trying to come to grips with the fact that I've lost my child. You go through all these different stages of denial, 
and you don't want to believe that the very worst has happened. Mm. So um, it seemed that I was often on autopilot and just following my parents as they're, you know, taking me to plan a funeral and decide where he's going to be buried. And so there are little flashes that I remember of those moments, but nothing big really stands out. You're just kind of numb and in shock. Yes, because the fateful event sadly happened in June of 1995, but your trial was only in February of 96. In that interim time, I mean, that's over six months. Where were you? Well, I spent from July 5th to October in the county jail. And um, it wasn't until test results started coming back on, you know, what they felt like the accelerant was that they realized their whole theory had kind of fallen apart. So I was granted bond. I always look at that as I received the gift that that made me continue to fight, continue to move forward. I wasn't in a good place when I got out. Mm. And of course, you're sitting in jail and you realize, you know, the harsh reality of I have nothing. My entire life has been taken. So when I walked out, it was, I want to be numb. I don't want to feel, I don't want to think. And I was going down a very dark path of drinking and taking drugs. And if I just didn't wake up, I don't think I would have cared. Mm. That only lasted for um, a couple of weeks. And then I started getting really sick. So I went to the doctor and discovered that I was pregnant. And so I immediately cleaned up my act and um, started really focusing on, I have a murder charge hanging over my head and I have to focus. I really honestly thought that Tony would be the only child I would ever have. Mm. So to get that blessing at my lowest moment, it was life-changing. Yeah, because I remember when we first met, you had shared that the judge had said to you at your conviction, because you were pregnant, that he would ensure that you would never have your son that you have today in your life, that he would ensure that he would you would never have that son in your life. So you enter the prison, you're pregnant. What happens to those children normally? Um, choose adoption. Some um, have no choice and their children are put into the foster care system. Mm. And some make the choice to have family members take their kids. Yeah. It's a hard decision to grapple with. Yeah. And so that was the decision that you made was for your mom to take care of, of your little boy, which, yeah, and you must have been really happy at the fact of knowing that you knew exactly where he was going and who he was going to be living with and that you would then be able to see him as he grows up as well, right? It was. You have a brother, a younger brother, and you mentioned that he also yeah. helped your mom take care of your little boy. Yes, the two of them actually took my son. My mom is disabled. 
So um, I was worried about her having the responsibility of an infant. And my brother was 17 when I was sent to prison and he quit school and started working three jobs and told me that he would make sure that my baby had everything he needed. And he did. So your family, your, your mom and your brother, when they would come and visit you, were they able to bring your son? Um, I was able to see him from the moment I was released from the hospital. There was actually a mix-up. We were supposed to be released at the same time, and I was released early. So I passed my family when they were coming in, and I was crying, telling them, please don't leave my baby here without me. And so they immediately got everything together for his release. And then they brought him straight over to the prison so that I could see that my family had him and he wasn't going to be there on his own. So I am interested to know, obviously being pregnant in prison um, must have been difficult for you having to face something totally unknown uh, for you. And so how normally is a birth of a child handled with someone that is in prison? So um, the medical care is, is not great. Mm. I had actually missed my last two OBGYN appointments because mm. paperwork didn't come through and they didn't put me in, into the system in time to get me out it's a process. So you get told the night before that you're going to clinic. And when that happens, you get up first thing in the morning, you go immediately to have breakfast and then they take you over and you have to change out to a prison transport uniform. You're handcuffed and shackled. And then they drive you to the hospital and every single pregnant person goes together. So you sit there in handcuffs and shackles while every single person sees the doctor. And then when the whole group is done, you're transported back. Wow. And so in the hospital, so you're in a public hospital when you have your son? Yes. Yes. They have a special department for Department of Corrections. And so how soon after you've had had your baby are you released from the hospital? 36 hours after. Wow. And I had to have um, a C-section because I couldn't give birth naturally. Wow. That is a lot more stress on the body and a lot more that you have to deal with as well because you would have had to have further uh, follow-up visits with the doctor and the yes. medical care system. Plus, you know, most people don't realize you're still handcuffed and shackled right up until you give birth. And then after you give birth, they put an ankle manacle on you and it's attached to a chain that's attached to your bed. So you can move enough to get to the bathroom and back to your bed. Wow. And that must have been a lot for you to deal with knowing being convicted for something that you did not do, and there's the loss of your son. I mean, that must have still been a lot to have to handle. What was your mindset life like at that time? Well, I mean, when I first got to prison, you go through an intake process where they decide where you're going to stay. Mm. So immediately when I got there, they had been passing around newspaper articles about my case. 
and anyone with a child case is not treated very nicely in prison. Mm. So um, I was fearful the moment that I arrived and knew that, you know, there could be some kind of violence. Somebody would try to hurt me. The guards weren't very nice to me. So my very first night I had a guard that wouldn't even let me out to go to the bathroom Mm -hmm. and I was six months pregnant. So the next day I, I passed out because I hadn't had a snack. I hadn't had dinner and the guard, the new day shift guard had said to me, are you trying to hurt your baby? And I started crying and I said, I'm trying to survive and I'm trying to make it and I don't know what to do. And she said, why didn't you eat your food? And I said, they didn't give me any. I said, she wouldn't even let me out to go to the bathroom. I said, my, my bunk mate gave me an empty Kool-Aid jar so I could pee at two o'clock in the morning. And she said, oh no, we're going to get this fixed. And true to her word, she made sure that that guard was no longer on the unit with me. She made sure that I was put into a cell with my own toilet And she made sure that I got every meal and extra milk and a pregnancy snack so that I would be okay. And after that, she watched out for me, which I think surprised everybody because she was supposed to be one of the meanest. But to me, she was one of the best. So she was like your guardian angel that had been given to you while you were there, right? With the prison warden. And so male and female guards or just female? Male and female guards which creates a lot of drama and problems Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, it's easy for the guards to take advantage and Mm. try to have relationships with the female prisoners. It's a difficult environment. So you mentioned you were sharing with someone else. Interested to know, you know, we, we see these programs on TV and they show that you're like orange is a new black <laughs> and the ladies are in this dormitory style. <laughs> so that is obviously a question, right? Is how real is it really from what we're seeing to what is actually is the truth and reality? So um, a lot of orange is the new black looked a lot like my prison setting later on because um, in intake, everybody has single bunks or double bunks, and you're in a private room with your bunkie. As you move into open population, some dorms are set up so that there's two to a room, and then some are set up barrack style, so it's an open dormitory, and there's a huge amount of women on each side, and we share a common area where you can go in and get ice and water and use the microwave. Are you separated from different individuals because of the type of crime or is everyone all together? So when I first went to open population, I was in a separate dorm and everyone there had 40 years or more on their sentence. So when I walked up there, I was, I was very scared because in intake, nobody really talked to me, you know, except a whisper about my case. So when I got up there, um, I met a young girl and she told me, she said, I've been waiting on you. And so, of course, immediately I'm, what? Why? And she said, we've never had a pregnant girl up here on the long-termers dorm. And she said, you know, I really want to see what it's like to be pregnant. I want to, you know, be your friend. And she said, feed you pickles and you know what it feels like. And 
I was like, well, you'll have a baby. And she said, you know, she said, I may not get out in time to have one. So I want to know what it's really like. Mm. And I looked at her and I said, do you know what I'm here for? And she started laughing and she said, honey, everybody up here is here for murder. We don't care. And so that time that I was on that dorm before they broke it apart and put mixed everybody together, they really mentored me, protected me, made me feel comfortable and, you know, encouraged me because so many of them had been there for so many years and they knew what it took to survive. Mm. So I was grateful that I had that time to be segregated with just different people with the same type of crime that I was there for because they, they didn't judge. They didn't talk about it. They just treated everybody like normal. It wasn't until we broke off and were in open population mixed in with everybody that you would have, you know, drug dealers talking about, Oh, don't talk to her girl. She's in here for murder. Mm. So that must've been a bit scary though, when you go into open population. Absolutely. I mean, um, I think back to what I was like before I came into prison and a lot of the people that I was in prison with, I had seen on the news and I'd heard their stories on the news and I believed it. You know, you, we take what is put out on the media as fact and to get in there and meet these same people who were kind to me when nobody else was really made me realize that I was kind of bigoted and um, really not open-minded to what can happen in somebody's life. So being in this situation, being there innocent, I realized how many of those people could be innocent or could they have gotten the facts messed up somehow? And they really didn't do what they were accused of. Yeah. So that would have been a lesson that you learned, a very hard way of learning that lesson about judging people and knowing that sometimes the facts are not as clear as what they are or as honest as what they are, right? So when does one move then into open population? So usually the intake process takes two to three weeks. Okay. And you go through a variety of testing to see, you know, should they put you in an educational classification or should you have a job classification? You know, what your educational level is, what your psychological needs are. What classification were you placed into? So I was placed as a GED tutor and I only did that half a day because in the afternoons I had parenting class because I was pregnant. Yes. So um, mornings were, you know, you get up and lights come on at 5 a.m. If you go to breakfast, that's usually starts at 730. And then by 830, you go to your morning classification and you stay there until 11 o'clock when you come to your dorm room for lunch. Yes. And so are there opportunities for you to also work and earn some sort of an income? Are those opportunities made available to you? So there are opportunities available. While I was in there, I should say the first nine years, I was able, after I gave birth, I went into an educational program and I worked a job 
or two sometimes so that I was always busy. It could be out of my room, off the dorm, whatever. Yeah. I wanted to be out. I wanted to be doing things. You know, there's the prisons are so full. They can't always offer a couple of jobs to each person. So the highest paying job in there is a dollar 30 a day. And that's if you're a kitchen cook. The lowest paying is like a dorm cleaner and they're receiving roughly 85 cents a day. Wow. And that money I'm assuming is that you're able to then purchase personal hygiene products with that? You are, but the bad part is uh, deodorant that I would buy out here at a regular store, I could get for $1.79. If I buy it on commissary, the same brand, the same size, I'm going to pay $2.79, So... They find a way to really increase the prices. And the bad part is most people believe medical care in there is free. But if I put in a doctor's slip, they're going to charge me $5 to see the doctor. And if he gives me a prescription of Tylenol, they're going to charge me another $5. Oh, my word, because that was going to be my next question, is if we're talking about services from, from your hair to health care, what is available? So you actually get charged if you need to see a doctor. So say you get a little bit of a cold, a, a flu sniffle, and you think, gosh, I need something for this head cold. You pay to see the doctor and you pay for your medication. Yes. There's a $5 copay. Wow. I know. It's, it's unbelievable. And then you feel really bad for the people that are like dorm workers because they're getting 85 cents a day, you figure they're only, you know, getting paid maybe 20 days a month. If you have to go to the doctor and get a prescription, all of your money is gone. You wow. have no choice but to ask your loved ones to help. Um, the only time that I received free services in there was when I was cleaning windows up on one of the dorms. And when I stepped down off of the window ledge, I had caught my ring and it tore up and tore my finger. So I came down, I was bleeding. They took me down to the infirmary. I received stitches and then they charged me $5 for the Tylenol that he prescribed to help with pain. Well, what most people don't realize is you're talking about privatized companies. So medical care is privatized. Commissary is privatized. Um, now all of our, our facilities are in uniform. So they get a prison to have a warehouse that they actually sew the uniforms and they pay them a dollar a day. And then they turn around and sell that uniform to another prison at full price. Wow. So, I mean, when you're talking about the prison complex, it's always about the money. Yeah. One of the services that you must have available is obviously having access to, is there a church? 
do you have a priest? Because I know you had mentioned that you had a priest, a Catholic priest that would come and visit you. So, you know, with regards to religious studies. So, yes, um, growing up, we weren't we weren't very religious. And um, I had attended, you know, Presbyterian church with one set of grandparents and Catholic church with another set. But I really wasn't one way or the other. Yeah. I just went, you know, when you had to go. When I first got to the prison, I was like, you know, they have these Bible studies and you could choose to go. And so one of the girls had said, you know, if you go to this Catholic Bible study, they bring in dogs. And I was like, dogs? And she said, yeah. She said, um, one of the volunteers is training service dogs for disabled mm. people. And she said, you can sit on the floor the entire time and pet the dogs. Selfishly, <laughs> I signed up. <laughs> I would have as well. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to see those dogs. So I had been going for several months and I listened to everything that, you know, the volunteers shared and the priest, he came in every week for it. And um, then he said, you know, everybody's going to tell why we're here. How did we come to be here? And so the people in the group are getting up there and they're, they're sharing about, you know, what their crime is. And I waited to be the very last person because I thought mine is so horrible Mm. that they're going to ask me to leave. I'm never going to get to see these dogs again. I got up there and I, I told that I'd lost my son in a fire and I had been charged with his murder and was setting that fire. And I said, if you don't want me to come back, you can just tell me. And the priest put his arm around me and he said, do you know, he said, when, when we have Catholic service, why we have grape juice? And I looked at him and he said, it's because I'm an alcoholic. And he said, I had to get special dispensation to not use wine so that I could, you know, conquer my own demons. And he said, everybody has something in their life. And he said, what you need to know is, he said, here, you're home. And I never, ever forgot that. And so after that, I went in and took RCIA and I was formally made a Wow. And I realized that, you know, there were many different people in there and they all had different visions of God. But when every single one of us got down to pray, we were all praying for hope and strength and determination to make it through and for our families to be safe. And so when you think about it like that, and and we're all throwing up the same prayers it kind of changes your idea on what God is. I looked at at Father Larry and how giving and loving he was. And I said, that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to treat anybody like they are home and they are welcome with me. And so that is the faith I'm going to follow. And that is the person I'm going to be. I struggle with that. I <laughs> I don't think there are many who don't struggle with that. I get angry. There are still days all these many years later that I wake up and look in the mirror and say, why am I here? Yeah. Why was he not saved instead of me? 
and I get angry and I get hurt all over again because, you know, I'm imagining what would, what would he have looked like and what kind of person would he have been? I'm so grateful for Trent and now my granddaughter and I am beyond blessed. But if there was a moment that I could go back and fix it and watch him grow up too, I would want that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you that if sometimes you feel some days that you just go, if there is that moment that I could just turn this all around, even although you're doing such phenomenal work now, already you've shared two lessons that you learned whilst you were in prison is to not judge people at face value, but to get to know them and learn learn about them and, and really get to know their stories and Again, it comes to Father Larry saying that you're always welcome and you just think, well, this is how I want to be with everyone. I want to be welcoming to anybody and everybody within that religious circle and that at, during that prayer time of how we are more alike than we are different, which is beautiful uh, lessons to learn, but over such tragedy, which I really feel for you with that. Really if, if I could go back and give him his life back, mm. I absolutely would in a moment. But on the flip side of that, I would not want to change the person that I am now. I don't recognize the person that I was before prison because I was so, I don't want to say small-minded. I'm going to say naive. I just didn't know that the things that occur in our world truly happen. I didn't realize that, you know, innocent people went to prison. I didn't realize that mothers went to prison for stealing to try to feed their kids. I didn't realize that women went to prison for killing their abusers. So to have your life twisted like that and come out on the backside and realize I now have a voice. I now have a platform. I've lived it. I've seen it. I know. I'm proud of that. Yeah. I am glad with the work that I'm able to do. I'm glad that my voice resonates with other people. And I'm glad people ask me, what is it really like in there? I really appreciate you sharing this because I wanted you to walk listeners through and, you know, through what it is like being in prison, who are these people that you are meeting? Walk in your footsteps. Well, what would we all do in that situation? Any one person, inmate that was there that you became very close to and bonded and made a friendship with and any story that you could share with us? So the, the first story I told you about the girl that said she was waiting on a pregnant girl. Yeah. That is my friend, Hope. You know, she she helped me pick out Trent's name, and she painted my toenails, and she would read poetry to my belly, and she said, you know, this is going to make him smart. And she really watched out for me. Mm. She was able to get out before I was because she was, you know, forced into a plea agreement while she was very young. And she shouldn't have been able to sign a plea agreement. So she was resentenced and released. And then after I was exonerated, 
I was at her son's first birthday party. It meant so much to me to see that she got to be a mom and that I was there to see it and to be in the same place that she was to see her grow. I mean, she's found a wonderful partner and they have two kids now and I go over there for dinners and I have seen her, you know, open her own business and just excel in life. And I'm so blessed that I know her and that I had a friend like that. Yeah. And you have this friend form this connection. I don't know if you ever sit there and go, can you believe that that this happened to us? No, it's exactly like that. And there are times that um, she'll she'll hear that I'm going to speak somewhere or mm. <laughs> that I'm going to share my story. And she'll just look at me and she'll say, you know, I used to just roll my eyes every time I saw you sitting there pouring over a law book. And she said, the day you walked out of there and I knew that you were innocent and everything was going to be reversed for you. She said, I was like, I should have never gave her a hard time about looking at those law books. <laughs> because that's something as well that you mentioned to me when we, when we first met was that the judge had said that you would never be able to have your son and you headed straight for the library working towards how can I ensure that my son ends up with my family? So there is a library available. There's only um, when you're in intake, you have to have an emergency situation before you can go down there until you get to open population. And then they have set hours that you can go to the law library or you can put in a slip and a law librarian can help you. So I put in that it was an emergency. It was a matter of, you know, my child's custody. And when I got down there, I was told by one of the law librarians that despite everything my judge had said about, I would never know or see that child. He had failed to put in an order saying that my child was going to be taken. So she said at this point, she said, it doesn't matter what he said. There's nothing in writing. You are free to say where your child goes. And what a pleasure that you were able to have that access because, I mean, how else would you have achieved what you did if that was not available to you? I don't know. I mean, I, I think about that a lot and I worry over the people that are still in prison that don't have adequate access to a law library. They don't have people helping them. Mm. Yeah. It's a tough situation to be in. Yeah. So while you were in prison, you were able to study. And I'm very interested in what you chose. You chose English and anthropology from Ball State University. So I'm interested to know why anthropology? <laughs> <laughs> well, when they would come out, it was, um, you know, the, the professors that were willing to volunteer to come into a maximum security facility. So we had more professors that taught anthropology and English <laughs> and educational psych. And technically, you were only supposed to be able to get an associate's of arts and a bachelor's of general studies. 
But I managed to work in enough English classes that I could get a Bachelor of Science with an English major and a double minor of anthropology and educational psychology. So um, it worked out. There were two of us <laughs> that managed to do that and kind of squeaked through. And then, of course, they quickly changed the program after they realized, oh, they squeaked through. <laughs> but um, I think anthropology really opened eyes to, you know, the lessons we can learn from the past. When they go in and they're studying human behavior, we have the same behaviors now. We just have more stuff that we use. But we're still doing the same things. We're still trying to create a home and a safe place and take care of our families. It was very enlightening. Uh, English, that was kind of a no-brainer. I've always loved to read. And um, the professor, <laughs> my very first class with him, I was very nervous and I handed in a paper. And um, it was supposed to be just a, a funny paper. You know, how would you get a good grade from your your professor, and you were supposed to write an essay. And so I started off mine talking about, well, I'm cute. So I would flirt with my professor and hope that he would give me a good grade. So he <laughs> handed it back to me and gave me a B. And I said, why did I get a B on this? And he said, what if your professor is gay? I said, okay. I said, my brother's single and he's cute. <laughs> and so he started laughing. And he said, I expect to see you in some of my literature classes. He said, we have open debate. And he was right. I loved it. I loved discussing, you know, what people really meant and what they were trying to say within the poetry and what the hidden meaning was. He opened my world in a way that I didn't imagine. Yeah. And I can, I, I would imagine as well that during that time, it's a great distraction as well for you whilst you're, whilst you're yeah. there. And, but now you mentioned that this is no longer available. It's not. They have taken the educational programs out. Mm -hmm. And so now nobody is getting degrees, which is just very sad. I look at, you know, when you were talking about me going to college, college mm -hmm. was my recreation. I had to give up my recreational activities to attend classes. And so a lot of us chose to do that. You're talking about a normal day, you know, while I was studying, while I was working three jobs, a normal day was I got up at five o'clock in the morning because I was training service dogs. So my dog had to go out. Then I would get my dog breakfast, brush its teeth, run through a little training out to the bathroom, and then I would get myself ready. Education, I would go to the education building and I worked in the law library. That was from 8 to 11. Then I was back for lunch. My dog went everywhere with me except the dining room. So I would go to lunch and then I would go to dog training from 1 to 3. And we would work as a group, all the dog trainers, and talk about who our possible clients are because our service dogs went to help disabled children. Mm. 3 o'clock we would come back. We had formal count. So you had to be on your bed. 3.30, I would leave and leave my dog for quiet time, and I would go work out, do aerobics, whatever he chose to do. Then I would leave from there, go to the dining room. I would eat, come back, take a shower real quick, and by 6 o'clock, I was in the education building 
for college classes, which lasted from 6 to 8.30. Then back to my dorm. Then, you know, I'm taking care of my dog, do all the nighttime stuff. I would put my dog in the crate and I would go be a late night kitchen cleaner from usually 12 to 2.30 in the morning. And then I would come back, I would go to bed and get up and do it all over again, Monday through Friday. Then I had the weekends to do papers, you know, play outside with my dog, that type of thing. But the busier I was, the less time I had to worry, the less time I had to get in trouble. The last time, you know, if people are idle, they're going to find different things to get in trouble with to create drama. Mm. So why not keep a schedule like that where you can allow people to be busy, to feel like they're giving back and they're not just in there for the rest of their lives. forgotten. Yes. So there is absolutely no educational opportunity at all now. They offer GED classes. Okay. But the demand for GED classes is so huge that if somebody has a really long sentence, they'll be put on a wait list. And somebody that comes in with only six months may get in the GED program before them. So it may be years for a person to get into that program if they have a long sentence. Hmm. Wow. Listeners, we have reached the end of part one of this two-part episode. Please join us next week as Christine continues to share with us the lessons learned, challenges she faced trying to fight for her innocence from behind prison walls, her volunteering and giving back to the community by training and taking care of guide dogs, as well as sharing from sunrise to sunset what her day looked like in prison. Tons more of storytelling, and we certainly did not get to hear it all. We find out where Christine is today and the organization she has founded. Just is for just us to support exonerees. In the meantime, listeners, if you would like to learn more about Christine's wrongful conviction, the details of the case, you can find links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our episodes, please rate and review and share with others. Now, I will leave you in the usual knowing me, knowing you fashion with a quote by the voice of the innocent. You know my name, not my story. You heard what others said about me, but you haven't heard what I had to say. Don't judge me until you've walked my journey. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you. Till next time.